<clears throat> Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 10? If you're new with us, we welcome you this morning. Just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, and we've entered into chapter 10 and, uh, and into a teaching that Jesus gave, which we've entitled the Good Shepherd Discourse. Now, in the course of studying this discourse, we paused last time to focus on something that Jesus said that is of particular interest and importance to us, uh, because as Christians, we have been commanded by the Lord to go into all the world and preach the good news, the gospel, to the lost. So this becomes especially important for us as we uh, look at this little mini-series. And um, I want to focus in on verse 9. Verse 9, where Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ is telling us that he and he alone is the door that leads to salvation. Something he would say again very clearly in chapter 14, verse 6, where he would go on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There's only one entrance into salvation. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the door. But listen, and we're reviewing from last time. Listen, any door that leads to something of great value is going to be locked. And likewise, the door leading to salvation is locked and requires a key to open it. Now, what is the key that unlocks the door and allows a person to enter into Christ and find salvation? Well, it's the gospel, the gospel. So the gospel is to salvation what a key is to a lock. However, we all know that a key won't open a door if it's somehow gotten bent or twisted. The key must be straight and true if it's going to be used to open a door. And guys, listen, the same is true with the gospel. If the gospel has been twisted, distorted, or perverted in, in any way, Neither will it be able to unlock the door that leads to salvation, and nobody knows that more than the devil himself. And so the devil, who Jesus calls in John 8 the father of lies, has worked very hard over the centuries to twist and distort the gospel of Jesus Christ to keep the door of salvation locked to seekers, to seekers. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, we read, Paul the Apostle said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. This would not be the true gospel, it would be a perverted gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ, the true gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him, her, be accursed. The Greek is cast down to the lowest hell. Guys, if Satan can twist and distort the gospel, he can keep the door of salvation locked to people even all the while they think they're saved. I mean, the devil knows that most people are not going to be atheists or agnostics. They want to believe. And a lot of them believe in Jesus Christ. And so what he does then with these folks is he perverts the true gospel, feeds them a false gospel that they think is the true gospel, 
which they've embraced many of them with all of their heart, but that gospel can't save them. It's bent, it's twisted, it's distorted. It will not open the door that leads to salvation. That's why we must know the true gospel. And we must be able to share it accurately with the people we come in contact with. Now, several years ago, we did a whole series we entitled, I Want to Be Saved, Can You Help Me? And at that time, we studied the true gospel in detail. This mini-series draws from that. You can go online, pull it uh, off of the uh, website, and listen to it if you uh, would like. Um, But it comes out of Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, wanted to know God. He wanted to know the God of the, of the Jews. And, uh, and uh, he found out that Peter, an angel actually told him, to send some servants to the house of, uh, uh, to the house of Simon, the tenor, uh, by the sea, because Simon Peter was staying with him, and call for him, and he will tell you how you can be saved. So Cornelius did that. And when Peter comes to his house, he essentially says to him, I want to be saved. Can you help me? Now, look, at the time we presented that uh, series, we said there are many genuine Christians who really love the Lord, but don't really know what's involved in a biblical presentation of the gospel. We set up that study at that time, the series, I Want to Be Saved, Can You Help Me?, by asking the church, if someone came to you and asked you, I want to be saved, can you help me? What would you tell them? I know a lot of people would say, I'll just tell them to believe in Jesus. Yes, but is all faith saving faith? The Bible tells us that even the demons believe in Jesus and tremble. Are they saved? Are they going to heaven? And for that matter, what Jesus are you asking them to believe in? Is it the Jesus of the Mormons who believes that he is the brother of Lucifer? Is it the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus Christ is a created being less in glory and power than Almighty Jehovah God? See, Paul tells us, and this is nothing new, Satan has been doing this from the very beginning of the church age. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4, he said, you know, I fear lest any of you be deceived by the devil. Uh, you know, what he said was, I'm, I'm, I'm actually taken back that you would so quickly embrace another Jesus, a different gospel from a spirit we didn't give to you. It wasn't the Holy Spirit. But these people come, these false teachers, and you open your arms to them. You know how many false prophets have been welcomed into churches and given pulpits to preach their baloney from? All because churches are not rooted and grounded in God's word. And Paul says, I, I'm just taken back that you would open your arms to, to these false teachers. I mean, I was with you. I gave you the true gospel, the true Jesus from the Holy Spirit, and you've rejected that and have embraced a different Jesus, another gospel, from a different spirit. Let me just stop here and say this, that the reason I feel so strongly about this series is because nothing is more basic, nothing is more foundational to the Christian life than knowing and sharing the gospel. The term evangelical 
comes from a Greek word that we get the words gospel and evangelize from. When we call ourselves evangelical Christians, we are saying that we believe in the gospel as presented in the New Testament and are committed to sharing it with others. I mean, that was the passion of Jesus, wasn't it? Who said in Luke 19.10, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. And how did he seek and save them? By sharing with them the gospel. Of course, we call it. And then he passed that commission on to his disciples, all of us. We call it the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the good news, the gospel, to every person you come in contact with. I mean, you would think that nothing in the Christian life, nothing in the Christian church would be more important than teaching and training young disciples of Christ, young Christians, to know what the gospel is and how to share with those who are lost. You would think that. But today you would be wrong. You would be wrong. As we have said last time, only the true gospel can bring new life in Christ. A false gospel, no matter how sincerely it is believed in, well, it won't save anyone. Now look, as we said, I'm going to let you do a lot of this on your own, okay? I, I'm not going to chase each one of these down, but the, uh, as we study the New Testament and the various gospel presentations, they all share the same core elements. Now, the first element isn't really a part of the gospel. I want to throw you a curveball, okay? We, we looked at this last time, all right? Uh, the first thing I'd like to share with you that comes through in the gospels and the New Testament uh, with regard to when the apostles or others shared the gospel with others, uh, the first part of the gospel itself isn't really a part of the gospel. In other words, it isn't essential for salvation. You don't have to believe in it to be saved is the idea. It is more the introduction, the introduction, the motivation to get people moving in the direction of salvation. And here it is. There is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of judgment coming. I'll read you two of a couple dozen scriptures we could look at on the subject. Acts 10, verse 42. Peter is telling Cornelius how Jesus commanded them to preach to people the gospel and to testify that it is he who was ordained, that is Christ, who was ordained by the Father um, to be judge of the living and the dead. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul said to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. When Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to judge. He's going to judge. A lot of folks, they will concede there is a God, but they stop short of a God who judges sin. Today, if people believe in God, they only gravitate to what they like about God, his love, his mercy, his grace. The Bible has a lot to say about his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice. But they don't like that, okay? They don't like that. See, the very word gospel means good news. Good news, which implies the presence of something not so good or bad news. Again, we're still reviewing from last time. The bad news that makes the gospel such good news 
is that man having rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden was doomed to spend eternity in hell. Now, here's what I didn't understand when I first became a Christian. In other words, I didn't understand it all the years I was growing up in Roman Catholicism. It was never taught to me, all right? It wasn't until I started reading the Bible that I understood that in John chapter 3, verse 17, well, Jesus said, I have not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me should be saved. First time he came, he came to save. Second time he comes, he's coming to judge. But I didn't come the first time to judge. I came to save. He who believes is not condemned will not go to hell. He who does not believe in me is condemned already. People don't understand that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam blew it, and Adam was the federal head of the human race, a sin is passed down from Adam to the fathers, to the children. It's always through the father. In Adam all die, not in Eve all die. We've talked about that, right? But when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he blew it for all of us. We were all, even though we weren't born yet, we were going to be born eventually as his descendants. We were all cursed and condemned. When God proclaimed the curse on Adam's family, it affected all of us. All of us. At that moment, you know, people think, well, you know what? I'm going to have my day in court someday. When I die, I'll stand before God. I'll plead my case, tell him what a good person I was. Certainly he'll let me into heaven. What they don't understand and what I didn't understand until I read the scriptures was the case has already been decided. God said guilty. All that's left to do is the sentencing phase. We're all guilty sinners. We're all hellbound. That's the bad news. And there is nothing we could do to change that. Once a fallen sinner, always a fallen and then condemned sinner. We were condemned already. People don't realize that. Of course, the good news is that God loved us. So much that he gave his only begotten son, begotten son to die for us. He sent his son to die in our place, that we wouldn't have to spend eternity in hell. Don't you think that's an important message to work into your gospel presentation? Many Christians today would say in response to this, something along these lines, I don't believe we should talk about judgment when we present the gospel. I mean, God is a God of love, right? And we should use love and not judgment and fear to win them to Christ. Look, if that's how you feel, I understand where you're coming from. I, too, would love to talk about God's love more than... I don't want to talk about judgment. I don't want to talk about hell. I would much rather talk about God's love. The problem is that's not biblical to limit the gospel message only to God's love. I'm not saying you can't work that in. We, obviously, we should. That was the motivation for God saving us. But the idea is that, you know what? Uh, to only focus on the positives... In neglecting, look, if I don't believe judgment is coming, judgment because I'm a sinner, if I don't believe I'm a sinner and I'm under the wrath of God, John 3, 36, then what do we need a Savior for? Well, what do we need a Savior for? If it's all God's love and how he wants to bless my life, uh, what do I need a Savior for? It's letting people know that we're sinners. The wrath of God abides on us. 
We're doomed to spend eternity in hell, separated from God for all eternity. But God, Ephesians 2, 4, who is rich in mercy, we're with his great love, we're with he loved us, sent his son to die in our place, for by grace, it's a gift, you've been saved. I mean, it's just not biblical. It's only for, to, to extract from the gospel message all talk of coming judgment. Look, I like what Jude said in his little epistle, verses 22 and 3. He said, on some have compassion. So some people, they know they're sinners. They're always beating themselves up. We don't need to beat them up more. So have compassion on those folks. Tell them how much God loves them. And that Jesus died for them and so on. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the very fires of hell, right? Look. I don't care if you love people into the kingdom. I don't care if you scare people into the kingdom. Let's just see them not go to hell. That's the most important thing, right? Some people, they can be loved into the kingdom. Some people literally need to have the H-E-L-L scared out of them by telling them judgment's coming. Oh, but I'm a good person. Who told you you were a good person? God never said you were a good person. Where'd you get that from? Well, I just feel it. Well, feelings can be manipulated. Feelings can be wrong. I feel I'm 6'2". It doesn't make me 6'2". <laughs> I'm not heavy. I'm just short. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, look, we can feel a whole bunch of stuff. Satan's the master of feelings. In fact, the Bible says pretty much everybody does feel they're a good person. But Jesus said... True goodness is moral perfection, and only God is good, right? Matthew 19. <laughs> Again, I, I'm not saying we should never bring in God's love when we present the gospel. But there must be a balance between the love of God for sinners and the wrath of God poured out on sin. Do you realize that John the Baptist and Jesus himself were both hellfire and damnation preachers? Yeah, John, we get, okay? Jesus, not so much. But it's true. It's true. Um, and the whole point of preaching the gospel is to tell people that they are lost and hell-bound, but that God loves them and gave his son to die for, excuse me, to die for them, to save them from eternal destruction and hell. And so, guys, that segues into our first real point with regard to the gospel, and it's repentance. Jesus said it. He said it in Mark 1, verse 15. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, you say, well, is repentance separate from the gospel? No. Think of it this way. He said, repent and believe. It's like flip sides of the same coin. Yeah, well, I'll talk about that more in a second. You can't really repent without believing, in a sense. And so it, it, they go together, is the idea, right? I, I just want to bring this up because there are many pastors who, that don't believe repentance is necessary for salvation. They say, they say a person only needs to believe in Jesus to be saved. I agree with that. I agree with that. I have heard them say, though, that um, I've, I've heard them tell people that um, anyone who tells you you have to repent before you can believe and be saved, that's salvation by works, they say. Repentance is a work. You're saved by grace. Don't let anybody tell you about how you have to repent. 
Whenever someone says that to me, that repentance is not part of the gospel, it's a work. I just simply direct them to the words of Jesus himself in the subject. Luke 13, verse 3, Jesus said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish in hell. Now, you want to argue with the Lord Jesus Christ, that's up to you. I'm just telling you what he said. If you don't repent, you will go to hell. We know the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which means, literally means, to have a change of mind. But if you study that Greek word, you will realize that it always has in view a change of mind that leads to a change in direction or a change in action. The idea is it's not a static or a passive idea. It's an action word. Yes, we have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. I don't understand what is so hard for some people to understand about this. I was telling first service, think of it this way. Our whole life before we accepted Christ, and, and some of us were religious. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. My wife and I both did. We got saved in the Catholic Church, right? Many of you in this room, same thing. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't you know, living a life of total sin and lawlessness. I certainly was not saved, though. And the idea is that we were going down the highway of life, if I can put it that way, in one direction. Thought we were fine, good people. And then one day the Holy Spirit began to work on us. We began to realize we were in a direction that was leading us away from God. Our whole lifestyle was not bringing us closer to Him. It was moving us in a direction farther away from Him. Imagine that you're on a highway and you realize at one point you're going in the wrong direction. What do you do? You find an off-ramp, you cross over the highway, get on the on-ramp, and you start going the other direction. That's what repentance is. That's why you can't, and that's what faith is, going in the right direction now. That's why you can't really separate these two concepts, right? Before we knew Christ, going in one direction. The Holy Spirit begins to work. I have a change of mind. I'm not going in the right direction. I need to turn around and start coming towards Christ, towards God. Get in the Word. Understand what God has said, right? That's what it's all about. Now, it's important to note that the concept of repentance permeates the Scripture. This is not an isolated idea you'll find here or maybe there. It permeates the Scripture in both the Old and New Testaments. Let me just look at a few New Testament examples, okay? I'm just going to read these, fire them off. You can write down the, the reference if you want. Repent, and I'm, I'm looking at repent, repentance as the first step of the gospel, the first word of the gospel, basically. First of all, repent was the first word out of the mouth of John the Baptist when he began his public ministry. Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. Repent was the first word out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ when he began his public ministry. Check out Matthew 4, verse 17. Repent was the first word out of the apostles' mouths when Jesus sent them out to preach. Check out Mark 6, verses 7 and 12. Repentance was an integral part of the gospel that the church was commissioned to preach to the world. You can check out Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. 
Repent was the first word of Peter's invitation on the day of Pentecost. Check out Acts chapter 2. When Peter laid out the first spirit-filled message of the church age, he gives the invitation. Men and brethren, they said to Peter, what must we do? What did Peter say? Repent and let every one of you be baptized. Repent, right? I'll give you one more. Repentance was an essential part of Paul's gospel presentation. Now, Paul is the, is the apostle of grace. And a lot of folks like to say, well, Paul never preached repentance. See, Paul's the apostle of grace. We're saved, but we're the, in the age of grace. Wait a minute. Check out Acts chapter 26, verses 19 and 20. As Paul is recounting his ministry and how Christ sent him out to preach the gospel, he said, I want everywhere telling people to repent. Guys, repentance is a word we don't hear too much anymore today in church. I mean, it sounds kind of archaic and out of step with the culture. And so in an effort to be hip, cool, those days are over. Okay, so you're looking at a man who, you know, uh, I'm not trying to be cool. I'm just trying not to drool at this stage, okay? I mean, you know. There was a time I was happening. Now people look at me and say, what happened? <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm past that. Good for you guys. I'm past that, right? But there's a lot of pastors, young, hip, skinny jeans. <laughs> right. Um, in an effort to be hip, cool, relevant, you know, politically correct, they have removed all references to repentance from their gospel preaching. And as such, their favorite evangelistic verses are now verses like John 3.16 and Revelation 3, verse 20. Of course, we all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Beautiful verse, right? And then Revelation uh, chapter 3, verse 20. We've talked about this last time. Where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door, door of your heart, and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door of their heart, I will come into them and, and have fellowship with them and they with me. Now, with regard to John 3.16, again, a beautiful verse, no doubt. It's not a gospel presentation, nor did Jesus ever intend it to be a gospel presentation. In John 3.16, the Lord Jesus declares God's love for the human race. Wonderful. It's a blessed thing but he isn't giving us a gospel presentation to use to bring lost people to him for salvation. Those who try to use it as a gospel presentation neglect to mention either through ignorance or oversight how Jesus preached repentance at other times as being necessary for salvation as we just cited a couple examples a minute ago. What about Revelation 3.20? That's become a favorite of many modern pastors and preachers today. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone opens the door, I'll come in and we'll have a great time together. We'll, we'll, we'll fellowship and so on. We have talked about this, right? You look at the first word of Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door, right? If you go back a little bit before the behold, verse, you know, there's, there's a space. Before the space, there's a period. And before the period, verse 19 is the word repent. It goes like this. Jesus said, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens their heart to me, I'll come into them and dine with them uh, and they with me. Guys, there can be no salvation without repentance. Repentance is actually used in the New Testament as a synonym for salvation. Again, Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, Jesus, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Twice in three verses, he makes it a point to say, if you don't repent, you're going to hell. You think that was important? I mean, if Jesus says something once, I think everyone here would say, that's pretty important. I better take it to heart. Twice in three verses, I think what he is saying, this is very important, don't miss this. But, but guys, where is that kind of preaching today? Where is that kind of preaching today? I'll tell you where it is. It's been replaced by a modern, politically correct gospel. It's been replaced by a modern, politically correct gospel. I was telling first service that this week I came across an article called Bar Church. Bar Church, as the uh, title implies, they meet in a bar. The idea is that they want to connect with people. And the two young couples that started this church, church said that, you know, sitting like you're sitting facing me and hearing a teaching every week and then coming back next week to hear more of the same, uh, doesn't resonate with a lot of people today. So we got to do church differently, right? And so they've invented this idea where people come to church, they grab a beer, grab a mimosa, a cup of coffee, uh, and then they, you know, and they, they hear this presentation and it's all very uh, relevant. That's the key word, right? I went on their website, and here's what it says. We talk about important S-H-I-T. And they use that a couple times. But this is hip. This is cool. Okay? We're connecting with the culture. Folks, I've said it before. Let me say it again. The dynamic of the church is not being like the world. It's being separate and different from the world. Why would people want to come to church to get what they get in the world? I mean, seriously. I mean, if I'm just trying to, to, uh, to uh, uh, replicate in church what goes out in the world, why do, why do people need us to stay in the world? When people are drawn to God, it's because the Holy Spirit is working, and they want to know what you folks have really works in your life because they know their life isn't working. That's why they want to see. You're, you're on trial. Anytime a new person comes into this church, they're checking you out. Do you really believe what you claim to believe? And are you living it and has, has it made a difference in your life? One young fireman said, whenever I come and they start talking more churchy terms and maybe Bible study kind of stuff, I'd stop going. See, this is, this is church for folks that don't want church. I don't get it. It's church for the goats, not for the sheep. This is the problem today, you know? Some people are trying so hard not to be church that it's irrelevant. This is just the latest iteration of the seeker-friendly stuff. That's all it is. Being like the world to reach the world. See, it isn't fashionable, is it, to preach a gospel that demands 
that people give up sins, worldly desires, and pursuits to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ with all their hearts. It's called commitment. Commitment has fallen on hard times in our culture. I just heard last year, maybe eight months ago, how the number of young people living together outside of wedlock is now, is now eclipsed those who are married. And you know why? Because of commitment. People don't want to make a commitment. And they want to have the freedom to come and go as they please. This isn't working for me anymore. I don't go through a message of divorce. I'm going to pick up my stuff and go. And that attitude has been brought into the church of Jesus Christ, which is a marriage, isn't it? The Bible says we're the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. We enter into a relationship with him. It's a marriage. And we make a commitment. That's what separates us from any other churchgoer. There's a lot of folks who go to church who aren't saved. What different? And they believe the same stuff we do many times. So what is the difference? The commitment. It's the commitment. Guys, the gospel, today we hear, the gospel that uh, we hear being preached today is basically come to Jesus and you'll be rich. Come to Jesus and he'll make you uh, happy. Take away all the pain of life, that kind of thing. It's a very emotional-based, very man-centered uh, approach. The gospel being preached today is a cross, not in all churches, but many. The gospel being preached today is a crossless gospel that tells people to simply believe some facts about Jesus. Even the demons believe those facts and tremble. Just believe some facts about Jesus, and you know what? He'll forgive you of all your sins and give you a place in heaven and you don't have to worry about giving up anything. And so we see churches basically telling people, you can still live with your boyfriend, girlfriend, you can still have sex outside of marriage, you can still take drugs and, and drink. Hey, you know what? God doesn't, uh, he's not against that kind of stuff. Really? What Bible are you reading? But this is an accommodation to the culture. Instead of remaining separate from the culture and being a light in the darkness, no, we want to become darkness to, what, reach others in darkness? How does that work? That's not the gospel that Jesus or the apostles preached. You can have me, Jesus. I give, you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ going around saying, you can have me and don't give up anything. Don't change at all. Keep doing, living the way you're living. Just add me to your life. That's not the gospel he preached or the apostles because it isn't the true gospel. It's not the true gospel. How in the world did this essential element of the gospel, repentance, how did it get excluded from modern preaching and evangelism? Because again, you rarely hear the word repentance. You turn on Christian radio or TV, you read a Christian book designed to help you to grow and bear fruit in the Christian life. Repentance is, is the missing thing, element. You, you barely hear it mentioned anymore today. What happened? I mean, the church was born with the preaching of repentance. Acts 2, repent, Peter said. And then, of course, all the apostles followed suit, imitating what the Lord Jesus Christ had told them to do. What happened? That repentance stopped being preached when the gospel was being preached. 
Well, some people trace it all the way back to the 1930s. In fact, they uh, point to a very godly man named uh, Harry Ironside, who was a great man of God, great Bible teacher. And uh, he noted that back in his day, the biblical doctrine of repentance was being systematically diluted and even deleted from the gospel message by some who saw it as a work and therefore contrary to the gospel of grace which Paul preached. He wrote a little book called Except Ye Repent. He was a champion of repentance, grieved his heart greatly to see what was going on in the church and how repentance had been removed in the gospel presentation. And uh, he had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, the, the doctrine of repentance is the missing note in many otherwise orthodox and fundamentally sound circles today. The missing note of the gospel, the true gospel. One well-known pastor of today had this to say, he said, and I quote, this is not a new battle. This is an old battle being fought for the minds of a new generation. People today are preaching a gospel that says, look, all you got to do is believe in Jesus. He's standing at the door of your heart knocking. Just open the door. Don't worry about your sin. Don't worry about giving up anything. God will take care of that later on, end quote. Ironside went on to say in that little book, Except you repent, he said, and I quote, shallow preaching that does not grapple with the terrible fact of man's sinfulness and guilt, calling on all men everywhere to repent, results in shallow conversions. I would say uh, pseudo-conversions. And so we have myriads of glib-tongued professors, those who profess to know God. We have myriads of glib-tongued professors today who give no evidence of regeneration whatsoever. Pratting of salvation by grace, they manifest no grace in their lives. Loudly, loudly declaring they are justified by faith alone, they fail to remember that faith without works is dead, end quote. Look, you might be sitting there thinking, well, how do I know if I've truly repented? Obviously, it's an important thing. How do I know if I've truly repented? Well, there's going to be certain fruits in your life that will bear witness to the genuineness of your repentance. I will have you turn to this one, Matthew 3. Now, this comes right out of the mouth of John the Baptist, okay? And uh, Matthew 3, verse 1 in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, listen now, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, you can't get saved until you repent. And I don't see any fruit in your life that indicates you have repented. Guys, true biblical repentance always involves a change. Now listen, I need to interject this here. Please listen to me. Because some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute now. I'm still wrestling with a lot of old sins. And, and I, 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 you know... And I really want to change. I don't want to do the things I've been doing for many years now, okay? Um, but I haven't changed yet. Does that mean I'm not really a Christian then? Is that what you're saying? No. Repentance means to have a change of mind. 
That's our responsibility. Of course, the Holy Spirit works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. The power to change always comes from God. So what God is looking for is a heart that says, Lord, I really do want to change. Lord, I don't want to justify my sins. It's wrong. I know it's wrong. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be this kind of person. I don't want to be into the drug, into the alcohol, into all these other things, pornography, whatever. Lord, I really do want to change. I need your grace and strength. I can't do it. God says, of course you can't. You keep drawing close to me. You keep drawing close to me every day. I will give you the strength to be what I want you to be. But he looks at the heart, doesn't he? And he knows if in your heart there's a true desire to change or not. We're not talking about lip service, right? We're not talking about lip service. We're talking about something that's real, rooted in the heart. You know, theologian Eric Sauer, in his book, The Triumph of the Crucified, speaks of true repentance, listen, as a threefold action. First of all, it involves awareness and understanding of our sin or wrongdoing. That acknowledge you're wrong, your sin. Number two, it involves our emotions. We feel bad about what we have done. And number three, it involves the appropriate actions to make for a change of lifestyle. Guys, listen to me as we bring this to a close, but I don't miss this, okay? Although recognition of personal wrongdoing is an important first step by itself, listen now, it is not only useless, it's dangerous. It's not only useless, it's dangerous because it tends to make a person think that mere recognition of wrongdoing along with a little remorse is all that nece that's necessary, all God's looking for. And while it is true that repentance will be accompanied by feelings of remorse and regret. When you're truly repenting, feelings will be involved. We're not robots. The problem is too many people acknowledge they've done something wrong, feel bad about it, and think that's all God wants. So me and God are good now. I, I acknowledge I was wrong. I feel bad about it. That's it, right? God and I are good again. Uh, no. No. Because regret and remorse without change is meaningless and even dangerous. It can deceive you into thinking that you are right with God when you're not. Remorse and regret are rooted in feelings, uh, rooted in feelings, whereas true repentance is rooted in action, turning around and making a change. You know, this was such an important subject that Paul the Apostle addressed this very issue in 2 Corinthians 7, if you turn there. He calls re repentance that is, uh, or sorrow, I should say, uh, that has no change attached to it. He calls it worldly sorrow. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. In other words, change. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. Verse 10. For godly sorrow, in other words, true repentance, produces, excuse me, godly sorrow produces repentance, again, which means a change, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. 
If what Paul is saying is that feelings of remorse and regret over your sin that makes you feel bad for what you've done, but in and of themselves doesn't go far enough to make any changes, is not true repentance. He is saying that kind of sorrow, where you feel bad about what you've done. You've acknowledged it, you feel bad about it, but you leave it right there. You don't take it to the next step, which is to complete the transaction, so to speak, the Holy Spirit's working. You acknowledge your sin, you feel bad about what you've done, now you've got to make the proper changes. Without doing that, Paul said, all the sorrow, regret, remorse, bad feelings in the world will not save a person. They will die in their sins and go to hell, all the while thinking that because they feel badly, acknowledge that they have done something wrong, they're right with God. This, this is a real problem. Now, listen to me. We're talking about an unbeliever now. What about a believer who commits sin? Well, the Bible says that we also must repent, right? We also must repent. Because if we don't, we're not right with God. We, we're out of fellowship. Read Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. How that sin separates us from God. Not in the sense that we lose our salvation, but that we are a broken fellowship with the Lord. And so all the fruit of the Spirit begins to wither and die. Uh, all the passion for God begins to wane. Uh, our ministry is, it be, becomes uh, just a wasteland and eventually folds. Well, what's the problem? I feel bad. I told God I did something wrong. Well, Paul said that's worldly sorrow that doesn't produce any changes and allows you to deceive yourself or the devil to deceive into thinking that you're right with God when you really are not. Guys, that's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is God-focused and worldly sorrow is self-focused. We don't even realize so often when we feel bad, we're not even feeling bad about the sin we've committed. Only the consequences is brought into our lives. Check out uh, 1 Samuel 15. That whole section with Saul and how he disobeyed God, right? Uh, when God gave him a direct order, he didn't do it. He, he thought better. He was going to do it differently. And when Samuel was sent to King Saul to confront him, he said, well, I know I have sinned, but honor me now in the sight of the people. Let's go worship the Lord, Samuel. We'd rather do anything than really repent. We'd rather go to church. We'd rather read the Bible. We'd rather worship God as long as I didn't have to make any changes. This is the problem. This is the problem. This is what Paul was getting at. Look at first, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. Look at the results that true godly sorrow, repentance, look at what it produced in the Corinthians' lives. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And what was the result? What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. You made the necessary changes. I know your repentance was genuine and not just worldly sorrow, Paul says, because it produced in you a zeal to get things right with God. 
One pastor said, simply feeling guilty over what I have done is not repentance. In essence, I haven't even touched upon the sin itself. And Satan has effectively counterfeited the path that leads to repentance because it is so important to our walk with God. And it is possible for a Christian to remain. This should cause all of us to pause. Okay, it is possible for a Christian to remain in an attitude of regret and remorse for years and get nowhere in victory over their sin in their life. Because God doesn't work through regret and remorse, he works through repentance, end quote. To me, this is a very important issue. Because so often we do something wrong, and if we do acknowledge it and feel bad about it, we tend to move on before we actually make any changes. We think because we've moved on, God's moved on. It's old news, you know? God doesn't care about those sins in the past. Look, they accumulate until you can really bring your heart before God with good, heartfelt repentance. And if not, well, again, you will see your Christian walk begin to dry up. The root of the Spirit uh, dries up. You're like a dry well going through the motions, you know. You've lost the emotion in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because I'm convinced many Christians have not really done their business with the Lord in the sense where they've really uh, repented of their sins. Now look, I told first service and we're done. There are ministries that will hypnotize you to regress you back years and years and years to something you've done in the past. And they'll, here it is. This is when you were seven. You took that cookie. You know, you never repented. And now this is where you're going to all this trouble today. No, 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 no. Believe me, if something is standing between you and God, he's been talking to you about it for a while. You've just been kind of ignoring it. You know what it is. You know what it is. Get it right. Get it right. Tozer said, God will take nine steps toward us, but he will not take the tenth. He will incline us to repent, but he cannot do our repenting for us, end quote. It's a good quote and very true. So may God give us grace. And I think next week we'll finish up this little mini-series. Again, you can go online and listen to I Want to Be Saved, Can You Help Me series. But uh, just to kind of you know, get you really thinking about this and uh, how God works through repentance, not just remorse and regret, okay? Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you gave your son to die for us. That's good news. And Lord, we pray that when we do mess up, when we do blow it, we don't try to sweep it under the carpet. We don't try to excuse it or blame somebody else for it. We get right with you, Lord. We confess it. We um, try to make it right if we can. If we've taken something from somebody wrongfully, we res restore it. Lord, give us grace. Show us what there might be in maybe each of our lives that we haven't really, really brought before you and repented of. Father, we just thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen.